0: Okay, good morning, everyone. Let's begin with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, we had left off, according to my notes, somewhere around chapter 20, verse 24. Does that ring a bell? We had our voters meeting last week, so it feels like a year ago that we were doing this study. Let's pick up there, and if it all gets too familiar, we'll know. So at 24, a man's steps are from the Lord. How then can man understand his way? And of course, we spent a bit of time talking about that last week, if I recall. Uh, The illusion of free choice, in many respects, is certainly not as broad as we often think it is. And I will uh, commend to you Luther's bondage of the will on that point. 25. It is a snare to say rashly it is holy, that is, it is set aside to God, and to reflect only after making vows. <laughs> so we could put that into the category of Proverbs, the slow down Proverbs. Don't rashly make vows, not unto other people, especially not unto god i thought i put it here in my notes but i don't see it handy remember there's that terrible story of the old testament man who makes the vow that whatever comes out of his tent next will be sacrificed to the lord and it's his daughter jephthah. what is it jephthah. jephthah thank you yeah just horrific uh, example of of this proverb but as a snare to say rashly it is holy or it is set apart and reflect only after making vows Probably fairly self-evident. On to twenty-six. A wise king winnows the wicked and drives the wheel over them. Oh, that sounds nice, like the wheel of fortune. <laughs> like, <laughs> so what is this saying? To winnow the wicked is to get rid of them, right? When you winnow, you blow, sometimes the fan or something, and the chaff gets blown away while the heavier grain remains. And so to, to winnow is to get rid of. And we talked about uh, the, lack of, the lack of immediate punishment in our country and how that just re- ends up uh, creating more and more crime and where one is laxing himself to be merciful, you end up being unmerciful because you allow the cancer to continue to be spread. You know, when you, when you have a cancer on your skin, you don't want the doctor to be merciful. You don't want the doctor to err on the side of, well, let's not take too much. Nor does he, as many of you report to me. It goes deeper than he needs to. Um, that's not only to get rid of all of the cancer, because otherwise, so if that, if that harshness is exchanged for mercy, then the, the doctor performing the procedure actually does you a disservice. And if he's merciful to the cancer, he's actually being unmerciful to you. And that's the same when you're unmerciful to the, to the criminals, to the crime. Uh, if you're merciful to them, then you're unmerciful to the society. And if you're unmerciful to them, you're merciful to the society see how that works so we talked a lot about this i don't want to recover that ground unless it's profoundly interesting to you but here you have a scriptural mandate to kings to rulers of this world there's no time stamp on it does anyone see an expiration date so wise kings will winnow the wicked they will drive them out they will use the sword they will use the death penalty the death penalty is fairly uh, completely biblical in fact it's mandated scripturally If you're a Christian and you say, I don't believe in the death penalty, you need to reread your Bible. And then drives the wheel over them. The wheel of what? Let's see if the study note can help us out. Nope. Nope. Yep. First step in winnowing was to roll a heavy weight over the stalks of grain, separating the grain from its stalks and hulls so that's taking winnowing and the, and the wheel together and it seems to be, I don't think it's wrong. I don't think it's wrong. Obviously there's a sense in which this language is used, the driving of the wheel over them uh, as chariots, as armies. So Kind of foreign policy of like, speak quietly and carry a big stick little more effective than like bumble noisily and never do much of anything one kind of leads to stability and the other leads to instability all right a little further then 27 the spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord searching all his innermost parts it's just great it's fantastic anthropology so, uh, your spirit is not your own. And I think spirit and soul can be used interchangeably. It's not your own, it's God's. At the heart of the spirit or soul is the conscience. That's, and the conscience uh, reflects one's relationship to God and to the character of God, who he is. So, the spirit or soul of a man, and I think you could read conscience here if you wanted to get an even tighter focus, though it's certainly not necessary, is the lamp of the Lord, searching all the innermost parts. So you are not yours, you're the Lord's, and the Lord actually has created your soul and uses your soul as his own lamp to enlighten the whole of what's in you and to determine the whole of what's in you. This ties in very well with like Romans 1, really Romans, the whole argument, Romans 1 through 3, that unbelievers are without excuse. So Jews are without excuse uh, because they have the law that tells them their, shows them their sinfulness, reveals their sin. But even Gentiles without the law are without excuse because the conscience accuses or excuses. So I know I've talked about this in a couple of my other classes and it's kind of becoming a well-worn soapbox at this point, but briefly... I just lost my total train of thought. <laughs> it's not really been my morning. Sorry about that. Let me see if I can regain it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Regaining the high ground so that when we talk to people, instead of coming across like pandering salesmen, would you pretty, pretty, pretty pleased by Jesus? Or will he make my life better? I, maybe. No. Be some more suffering. But, but eternal life will be better. Well, what if you're wrong? Well, wouldn't you rather just have fire insurance? Yeah. it's kind of pandering, conjoling. What's the, uh, how low can we get the cost of following Jesus? Where if you notice Jesus' way of preaching, it's the exact opposite. Jesus is always ratcheting it up and making it harder and harder and more and more difficult. And count the cost. And if you don't hate your parents and your family, you're not worthy of me. Jesus' way of making disciples is entirely different than the modern church of America. The modern church of America is used car salesman, how low can you go? Jesus is like, "Uh, yeah, no. Whoever whoever takes up the plow and takes his hand off of it is unworthy of me. Sorry. So here too then, um, regaining the high ground is talking to unbelievers, not like a used car salesman, but talking to them as though they're accountable to God and they, are, and they know they are. Because guess what? Both of those things are true. There's no as though. It's just factually true. People who do not believe repress the knowledge of God that God himself has put within them. How do I know? Because God himself says so. And then they say, well, I don't, know. I've never experienced those things. Well, who am I going to trust? God who made you or you who have already deceived yourself and rejected God who is the truth and now you're self-deceived. and You think you're being honest in your self-deception. So the default position of Scripture is to go out out into the world and say, you know who you are. You know what you've done. You know you're a sinner. You know you're worthy of death. You know that God has made the world. And you know by virtue of your own nasty, ugly death and the nasty, ugly death of of the rest of us that we're all sinners and we're all alienated from him. You know these things. They're self-evident. So, that's the frame of the argument. There's nothing beyond that. Well, you just think that because of the Bible. No, I don't. I don't need the Bible to come to those conclusions and neither do you. It's written in your heart. Deny it all you want, but you're going to be face-to-face with your maker, and he's not going to be deceived. Frankly, neither is any Christian enlightened by the word of God. Every man is without excuse. That's what the scriptures say. So then, um, just as the king needs to winnow the wicked and drive the wheel over them, uh, we, with the recognition of our conscience, uh, need to be the same, need to do the same. You need to recognize the truth and the reality of God and how he has made things and call people to account and call people to task their own conscience bearing witness. Now, our conscience bears witness within us as well. That's this beautiful picture then that the lamp of the Lord that he's shining into our persons is the spirit of a man searching all the innermost parts. And it's kind of, you know, it's it's true. It's not kind of true. It's absolutely true that no man knows the innermost parts of you except for You and the spirit of a man. And so God takes your spirit, shines it around, and comes to know the whole nature of who you are. What particular virtues you have, what particular vices you have, um, what sins you have, etc. And then, of course, when the proclamation of the gospel comes, which is not revealed in nature, but revealed by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ, the proclamation of that gospel comes, the inner heart is renewed, is enlightened the sins are cleansed away the temple is made pure Uh, and then from that purity then the the spirit of man which is the lamp of the lord sees faith sees trust not in oneself or one's own righteousness but trust in christ and his righteousness sees other things that weren't previously there sees love sees hope. The Bible actually is so audacious as to say, if you're not a believer in Christ, you've never loved anyone or anything. You don't even know what love is. What the scripture says. You have to know God, who is love, in order to love yourself. So the world's love, what it calls love, and what we Christians call love, are two entirely different things. Two entirely different things. So then the spirit of man, the lamp of the Lord, searches the innermost parts of the Christian, and of course he still finds the old sinful nature there. That's why we daily and richly need God's forgiveness to be poured out upon us and we pray as such in the Lord's Prayer. But there's also a new man that it shines upon, and new virtues, and new strengths, and new things to discover about oneself, and about who God has made you to be, and who God is maturing you to be as he conforms you into the image of Christ. Nothing self-righteous at all about looking back at your life and saying, okay, I, I have not yet attained the goal of being conformed to the image of Christ. Full stop. But I'm a lot more conformed now than I was 10 years ago or than I was 20 years ago. Nothing self-righteous at all about that. To whom goes the glory? To God. To God alone. I'm not going to do that myself. There's zero that's self-righteous. Now, we're not in the category of uh, justification, we're in the category of maturation, as Paul uses the language. Category of growth, as the entirety of Scripture. New Testament, Christ, Paul, the epistles, all use that language. Okay, so just riffing then on this uh, beautiful poetic statement, and true statement. The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all his innermost parts. Let me pause there. Let's see what you, uh, what you think about these proverbs we've covered so far. Any of them fair game? All the way up front here. I think you just touched on this, but I was going to ask the um, comparison of the spirit of the man and the Holy Spirit comparison. And I think you you just stated that the Holy Spirit will conform us after we believed, where the spirit of man perhaps is the only just reveals that we need a savior. Is that is that? well, I think, I think what you said probably sounds right. I just think the usage here is a little more generalized. So spirit wouldn't be reflective of just Christians. Spirit would just be the innermost part of a man, his spirit, his soul. So whether a believer or an unbeliever, God takes that as his lamp and shines around the internality, the subjectivity of each individual. You can't, we can't be known even one to another as God knows each one of us. Who knows the things of a man but the spirit of a man? That's the analogy that I think Paul uses later on. So that's the idea is you know yourself, but then God knows who you are as he takes your spirit and shines it like a lamp. God knows every aspect of you in a way that no other human being knows. Yes?
1: John Lennox um, sometimes has dialogues with atheists. John Lennox a professor at Oxford Mathematics. And one atheist he was talking with said that he didn't believe in God because there was too much evil in the world. And God shouldn't allow that kind of evil. And Lennox said back to him, well, if you don't believe that there's a God... But you're still left with the concept of good and evil. You have to give up the idea of God is not his fault. Yeah. And uh, so you have no excuse. He's shining the light back right on him.
0: It's a great point that if you try to extricate God and just do a straight materialism, you lose the concepts of good and evil. You also end up having a very difficult time explaining the phenomenon of the conscience. Because if crass Darwinianism is right, that it's to just breed as much as possible, why are our consciences burdened by that? And the only idea there is to punt to well, because we've all been sociologically influenced not to. That's not really a, an answer, and especially when people continue to act upon that, so you know, which is it? And all they, they can't give a definitive answer, they can't give a definitive narrative or a definitive anthropology the way Christianity can. The way Christianity can say these things are against you, the conscience exists because it's been given to you by God, and it's opposed to these animal-based things because they're animal and base. They're a symptom of the fall. And they're not the mechanisms by which God creates. God does not create through sex and death. God creates through sex and life. So that's, um, what we need to realize there is we've got a different anthropology, we've got a different creation story. Gee, that almost sounds like a different religion, but we can go ahead and call it science and deceive ourselves. Go ahead and call it wisdom and deceive ourselves. But if you've got a different creation story, a different anthropology, a different soteriology, that is a different message of the gospel, a different message of good news. You've got a different religion through and through. Okay, I saw a hand trying to fight desperately.
1: Yes. So um, the spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord. And I'm reading that and I'm saying, uh, are we saying that the spirit of man is nothing else than the lamp of the Lord? In other words, uh, we don't have any, it's not like, oh, gee, we have this great spirit and God uses it to get into into our innermost being. That's what we are. We're the lamp of the Lord. We exist in Him. In Him we live and move and have our being. I'm just wondering if there's you take it even deeper to sort of a metaphysical level. There's nothing to us other than that. If we you know you take away the Lord and we're gone. Well, that's true. If
0: you take away the Lord, we're gone. Yeah. I don't know. I'm a little dubious about some parts of that, especially the exclusionary parts. But I think I mean, again, the, the point of the first half is the second half, searching all his innermost parts. And again, I'm not trying to assert, I don't think this proverb's trying to assert that God is somehow ignorant of us, but that he uses our spirits, which are conscious, to examine all parts. We're along for the ride, as it were. We are, uh, in this sense, like subject and object, or, yeah, because we're, we're not only are we sort of shining and seeing, but he's the one who's leading us around to know ourselves as we are. You know, And I think that that's part of development. When you're a little kid, generally speaking, you grow up in at least a, a healthy environment, the, the default tends to be at least, okay, I'll just, can I relativize it anymore? The default tends to be that you are, um, you generally have a positive self-image and you generally also have a very narrow sense of, of yourself. And life unfolds who you are. And it, may, and it expands that image from being, let's say, a purely positive one or a mostly positive one to a much more accurate one. And so you come to know yourself more. And then your experience in life broaden your knowledge of yourself. Like, you don't know who you really are until you've been in a fight, or you don't know, like, that kind of thing. That would just be an example. Like, you don't know who you really are until the chips are down. That kind of thing's an an example. The person, we ourselves, are mysterious to ourselves. We're certainly mysterious to others. We're mysterious to ourselves. And as the light, as the lamp of the Lord is the spirit of man searching all his innermost parts, I mean... Yeah, in a sense, it's the Lord bearing witness to that, but he's also causing us to shine upon and see ourselves for who we are. So again, I don't, I don't, I don't think we're probably all that far off from you know, same thing. Okay, was there another, another comment? All right, let's mosey on. 28, steadfast love and faithfulness preserve the king. And by steadfast love, his throne is upheld. Now this is fun because it can work as like a subjective or objective genitive type construct. I mean, you could say that the subject here is the steadfast love of God and his faithfulness preserve the king. And the steadfast love of God uphold the king's throne. But the other side of the coin is is equally true that the steadfast love and faithfulness of the king himself preserve him. And by his steadfast love is the throne upheld. I think both are absolutely true and this proverb invites us to meditate on both sides of that coin. Um, Any position of leadership, you already know that, whether it's a king or whether it's some other civil ruler or whether it's uh, the grand pumbaa of some um, church body, or pastors, uh, you understand that the Lord is faithful. And that's the reason for which we stand, by which we stand. But it's also true that there has to be some level of reciprocity. If one is, breaks steadfast love, if one breaks faithfulness, neither he nor his sitting upon the throne are long going to be there. And obviously the true king, I mean the capital T capital K king is Christ. And so no doubt about, medita- you know, no doubt about the validity of meditating upon Christ here, the steadfast love and faithfulness preserve the king and by steadfast love his throne is upheld. It's the love of God, it's the love of Christ. It's really the foundation of who God is, it's the foundation of the holy trinity. Their love for one another, and that love unfolds out to the other angelic beings and to uh, saints. Okay, twenty-nine. The glory of young men is their strength, but the splendor of old men is their gray hair. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. Do we really have to say too much about that one? It's pretty self-evident, isn't it? Thirty blows that wound, cleanse away evil. Strokes make clean the innermost parts. This is this is just fantastic. This is um, it's nothing better than this. So this is a theme that's uh, recounted. Uh, I mean, over and over, repeated over and over in the proverbs. And this is to turn our hearts um, as Christians to embrace um, the blows and the strokes. um, By strokes, it's like the striking of of a whip. So, this is how God works, and this is how God cleanses away evil within us and makes clean the innermost parts. Okay. Is there a forensic righteousness credited to us for the sake of faith? Obviously. Is there an external blood of Christ that flows into our mouths internally and cleanses us from all sins, blots them out? Absolutely. Is there also, though, an operation by which God, through pain and suffering, actually purges away those things so that we don't do them or don't do them to the same degree? Self-evidently. And that's what this proverb is really talking about. It's talking about how God uses bad things, consequences, etc. to cleanse away evil and to clean the innermost parts. So this is an aspect of God's fatherly discipline and chastisement. Remember the New Testament scriptures even talk this way. Whom God does not chastise, he does not love. So the, when bad things happen to you, it's not like the flesh immediately wants to go, oh, God hates me, or you know, <laughs> no, or, do, or doesn't exist, or I'm mad at him, or some stupid thing. Uh, but what the new man, as he matures, can understand is when bad things happen, you can say, God loves me. This is, um, this is given to me for my good. And even when something bad happens, isn't it a knee-jerk reaction? Um, at least those of you who have been Christian for some time, isn't it pretty much a knee-jerk reaction where you, you take stock of You immediately feel humbled, and you realize you've been kind of haughty and puffed up. And you immediately sort of lower your spirit, and, and you know maybe you pray a prayer for God to have mercy on you or some such thing, but you suddenly just become aware of his fatherly care, and that you've received a fatherly blow, and it's good for you. And there, I think you can, once you, once you understand that, and what, you know, as you grow in your understanding of that, as you grow in your trust in that, after you get through the initial, like, well, that, this is unpleasant, um, you go, okay, actually, what is God working here? What is he doing? What is he calling me toward? What is he angling me toward? What is he making me despise that I've loved? What is he making me love that I've despised? Is he calling me away from my uh, concern with uh, this or that aspect of my life that's actually become overgrown? My concern for it has become overgrown. And he's now cutting that off. He's now making that a bitter thing. So I don't pursue that. Where am I going to put my intention and, and my attention? Back in him and in the things of him. So God will allow and cause all kinds of futility and frustration and pain and suffering and chastisement all as fatherly discipline to call us back to himself. And then what is he doing internally? Blows that wound. Cleanse away evil. And Normally blows that wound, especially before antibiotics are created, rot and fester. But now blows that wound, do the opposite. Cleanse away evil. Strokes make clean the innermost parts. In fact, I think it's in First John, but I'd have to go looking, where the, the chastisement, maybe one of you knows, if you can just, as my daughter says, Google it up. If you want to Google it up. Uh, but the chastisement is actually scourging. It's the technical word that's used for the scourging of Jesus. Or at least the word that, that scourging of Jesus is in John. And maybe it's in Hebrews. But it likens the scourging of Jesus. And you remember that he learned discipline? Remember that little line out of Hebrews? There's a sense in which the, that Christ as a human grows into the fullness of sonship grows in wisdom. He grows in stature. He learns the scriptures. He learns how to suffer. He learns how to cling to the Father even when the Father's hand is upon him in discipline. And that becomes a pattern for us so that even as he is being scourged, he's learning obedience. And so when we are likewise scourged or chastised in whatever ways, it's for the sake of learning obedience, again, for the cleaning of the innermost Hearts for the cleansing away of evil. All right, probably too much on that, but we can stop there and see if you have any reflections, see if that's uh, troublesome, or any of the other Proverbs are free game too.
1: Pastor, can I uh, just ask you to uh, reflect on a couple different parallels? I'm noticing that the strokes reach the innermost part, according to this verse, mm. and earlier on we're told that the candle, we, the verse we were just talking about before, the candle of the Lord reaches the innermost part. Ah, great point. And then the other one is the last. The, this is the last verse of this chapter. The last verse of the last chapter says that blows are prepared for fools. <laughs> Can you reflect on the on these parallels?
0: Okay, so you don't I'm. Have to. I'm sick. Se- <laughs> 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 thank you, thank you. Well, maybe I maybe I will just reflect on the that good and evil befall saints and uh, unbelievers. And it can be to us, uh, it can seem to us indiscriminate, or even unfair. Why did the evil prosper? Why do the good suffer? That kind of thing. And I think, uh, you know, if you took just an existential standpoint, an existential frame, it's like, okay, well, there's all this, there's all this bad stuff that's happening to me. Is it God's judgment and wrath, is it a foretaste of the hell to come? Or is it his fatherly compassion whereby he's cleansing me and transforming me and forming me into the image of his son? That's going to depend on whether you have faith or not. If you have faith in Christ and in the free forgiveness of sins we have in Christ, then you can see that God is a loving father and he's not giving you a foretaste of the hell to come. In fact, he's preparing you now for the heaven to come I would liken it to you know it's just I liken it to the potter with the clay making a vessel okay. so whether you're a small vessel or a great vessel a simple vessel or an intricate vessel when you go to heaven your cup overflows it's going to be heaven for everyone and equally heaven everyone's going to be equally full But what God calls us to in this life, and and, God God does not like egalitarianism the way we do. He's just not interested in it at all, and he doesn't care what we think. He loves diversity. And so not every Christian is called to this kind of thing. I mean, there will be Christians that are wonderfully, blessedly simple and small, and Christians that are wonderfully huge and intricate. Some of the church fathers, if you read their writings and understand their thought, they're like less men than they are cathedrals, like sort of living, breathing cathedrals. So God creates so what God is doing through this um, for we who are Christians we have faith we who know he's what he 's up to and love him because he first loved us uh, what he 's doing through mu- so much of suffering and so much of life is he 's like the potter with the clay he 's expanding that cup and he 's making it bigger and he 's making it more intricate he 's preparing us for eternal life it 's just kind of tangential to we have totally lost sight of an accurate view of what the intermediate state is and what the state of everlasting life is. It's organically connected to this life, to who we are and what we do. It's not like, I don't know, we get these strange, we've gotten these strange ideas in our culture. Most of them are kind of Gnostic, but the idea is like, okay, as soon as you die, you get lobotomized Then you're just sort of floating around like a cloud on the clouds with other clouds. And you're like, huh, will I remember anyone? Will I know anyone? <laughs> That's like the opposite. It's more like, that's a better picture of hell than it is heaven. Remember um, C.S. Lewis, when when the souls from hell step out into heaven, the grass is so hard that it's uncomfortable to them. It's tightening, it's more real. It's more concrete. That's the nature of heaven. It's also the nature of this life. Maturation is understanding reality about yourself, and it's hard. Right, because it's very uncomfortable. You realize you're way more wicked than you ever thought you were. And you realize that the world is basically a hellscape. I mean, the only thing worse is hell itself. That's sort of as you come to realize what you're looking at, it's, it's abysmal. It's dark. And there's so much delusion. We ourselves are so deluded. Even the most enlightened are like waking up from a stupor, like looking in a glass dimly. And to get into heaven is to become fully awake. And it's to see everything as it truly is. And it's to become more concrete and more sharply focused. And you understand yourself and others and better and, and, and all the rest of that. So, you know, you've got to, we've got to have this idea of then, like, it's not like when I die I'm suddenly going to be like, who am I? When I die I'm going to know who I am for the first time. When I die, I'm going to know others as they are for the first time without any delusion, without any distortion. And so then the transition into heaven is an, is an ontological transition of uh, like in an organic sort of way. Who you are at the beginning of your life, who you are at the end of your life, these things have to do with who you are in that age which is to come. I don't know where we got this idea that everybody, like, not only do you get a lobotomy, but then we're all, like, given a pair of prison scrubs so we all look exactly the same and uh, we're all up there in exactly uniform and um, nobody knows anything. It's just kind of tabula rasa, blank slate nonsense. I mean, all of this is just enlightenment uh, that's sort of painted itself hideously over, uh, over what the Scripture reveals and paints for us as heaven. So that's that's to to lean into and understand what God is doing in suffering is is in and through the suffering you endure, is to understand that He's a a master potter with clay, He's a master author writing you as a character, He is a sculptor chiseling you into the image of His Son, He is working these things out, and it absolutely has effect. on your experience in heaven so everybody has everybody's cup runneth over but to do a thought experiment if you just said okay from here on out I'm just going to believe in Jesus and do absolutely nothing and I'm just yeah, you know, am I going to go to church Nope. am I going to help anyone Nope. am I going to pray no nope. just going to believe in Jesus I mean first of all you won't actually be a Christian for very long despite what everybody assures you to the contrary you won't be any more than you can cut your finger off and see how long it stays alive apart from the body. But let's say hypothetically you did that. Okay, and let's say hypothetically you were right and you actually did remain a Christian somehow by God's grace and you get into heaven, that version of you is going to be a cup like this. Whereas if you lived and loved God, and loved man, and hated yourself, and lived in repentance, and lived as a Christian, being enlightened by the scriptures, enlightened by the teaching of the church, little by little over time, your cup is expanded more and more. And you will enter into heaven as the larger cup than you would as the smaller cup. And you will be able to receive even more, even though everybody's cup overflows, it's all great. It's all equally heaven. It's not all the same experience of heaven. So that is, uh, you know, in the same way, like, let's say, what would be an example? Yeah, sure. So you um, you take a, a 21-year-old kid. Just turned 21. Happy birthday. You can drink now. Here's some... Uh, Here's some scotch, one of the peaty scotches, okay, enjoy. And No sooner than that goes in the mouth, it's like wants to come back out because it's an acquired taste that <laughs> usually one's palate has to expand into. Okay, Are there acquired tastes in heaven? Something like that, something analogous to that. There are things that uh, we're prepared for in this life, that not other Christians are prepared for. There are things that we're ready for in that life which is to come, which other Christians aren't ready for. Might they get there at some point? Sure, absolutely. I think heaven's a dynamic place where we do just as the angels do. We continue to grow and learn and enjoy the converse and personality of God. And we, we receive and receive. I can find a proof text in Ephesians for you if you want, but I think that this is self evident. This is the goal and delight of the angels who always behold the face of my Father. What are they doing? Just, uh... They're contemplating the beatific vision, the mystery of the Holy Trinity, the converse of the Holy Trinity, the beauty of what love at its very essence is, and then seeing that love flowing out to all the other creatures gathered around, large and small, great and simple, and all the rest... You know, that's, that's dynamic, and that's the joy that God gives us. It's unfathomable to us that God could teach us forever, that we could learn and grow forever, but that's just because we don't understand God. <laughs> we don't understand what infinity is. So God is infinite in his wisdom and infinite in his ability to unfold wisdom to us. And so that'll be one of the chief joys of, of heaven, if not the chief joy. Okay, so embracing then this idea, whereas, yeah, so God means blows for the wicked, for the unbelieving, to turn them in repentance? Sure. Pain is God's megaphone. Uh, Punitively, to punish them? Temporal punishments? Absolutely. It's there. But how do we interpret that as his children? Might there still be temporal punishments? Yeah, sure might there still be punitive things yeah sure but those are mitigated by the fact that it's a father who's putting these things upon us temporarily for the sake of our everlasting good our everlasting formation all right hopefully that makes some sense anything else we want to talk about all right hand all the way in the back
1: Um, so a couple of weeks ago, um, you kind of made the comment about, um, when you go to heaven, you don't believe you're going to be made into an Asian woman. And, uh, oh yeah, yeah. So
0: I think that's one made, of the most obviously true things I've said recently.
1: <laughs> and, and, you know, a common thing that we say to people is it's okay. We'll see them again, do what you got to do so you could see them again, you know, and believe we tell people who die, we'll see them again in heaven. We'll see them again. But the Bible says you will be made new. So, can you um, describe what it means by "we will be made new"? Will we know people? I don't. That's that's confusing to me.
0: Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, even even now we're already made new. So you're born a sinner. You're made new into a sinner saint. You'll be made new again into just a saint, right? Um, You don't lose your memories along the way. There's no lobotomy. In fact, there's just an ever-greater knowing, um, an ever-greater focus. right? Like It's one thing to see the mountains on the horizon and they're all dusty and you can't really tell because the horizon's kind of dusty and uh, you can't really tell that much about them, but you see them. And then it's another thing as you, let's say, drive closer and closer and then you go, whoa, they're huge and they're snow-capped. And you go, that's amazing. And you drive closer and closer, and you might even kind of get a little deceived because you go, oh, look at the foothills. You know, it's not till you get over the foothills that then you see the majestic peaks again. And you go, whoa. And as you're cruising around those, you get this high and rocky and diverse landscapes and critters, and uh, then you get over the first range, you think that's going to be it. And there's another range. So it's an ever-increasing focus, just ever more, Like it's, it's not that it changes, not that what the, it's not that your understanding of the Bible changes in and of itself. It's just that the focus becomes ever increasingly, it just becomes ever increasingly clearer. And that's true then in our interaction with others. Um, so we don't want to say to people, you know, if, if, somebody's, a, if somebody's an unbeliever, we'd, you, know, you don't want to say you'll see them again. You don't want to see them again. That would be bad news for you. And there's lots of ways we can wrap our heads around that, Though we're out of time. But part of it, I mean, at its essence is just this. Do you love that person more or God more? No. And um, I think every, every husband has to, do the, has to go through this exercise with his, with his wife, I mean, in his mind. Every father with his children. And that's, if they went to hell, and would it break my heart? Absolutely. Would it stop me from loving God? Absolutely not. Do I live for God or do I live for these people whom God has given me? I live for God. The people are His gifts. He gives. He takes away. They're His. They're His business. How, how dare me be so insane as to say, well, you put my mother in hell, so therefore I want to go there too to be away from you. I, it's the most spiritually insane thing you can say. I mean, I, I sort of get the sinful emotions, but... The reality is, do you love God above all or not? And if you don't, you're not worthy of me, Christ says. So we do love him, and heaven will be heaven, and I want to see everyone I know in heaven. That's so what so we all should be working toward. Everyone we possibly know to be there in heaven with us. If they stubbornly refuse, that's on them. And again, kind of this will be a nice bookend to our whole conversation. It's on them and not on God. So don't get angry at God that he didn't convert them. They knew, and they're without excuse. And they hate the God whom you love. What you consider heaven, they consider hell. Those things are incompatible. And they should be deeply distressing. I mean, I, a person who in his heart of hearts hates God, I have very little in common with such a person. I mean, I, I aspire to love them the way Christ loves them, but what do we have in common? Until they until they convert very little, what fellowship has light with darkness? So then, as we as we get into heaven with the saints, you know, and I know I'm over time here, but remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, when uh, Moses and Elijah are there, and then Jesus had to say, "Now Peter, James, and John, I'd like to introduce you. This is Moses uh, and Elijah, the prophet. They're kind of a big deal. No introductions need to be made, because they already saw, they already new that to me is an indicator of uh, the realities of heaven you're not going to you know be walking by some short red-headed jewish guy and be like huh who is that and someone's like do you know that that was king david yeah. <laughs> okay you're probably going to already know who people are simply by looking at them and that that We could do more proof texting if we need it, but that's uh, that's my hunch. There is whenever you have heavenly revelations, everybody's known. All right, that's it. The Lord be with you.